You know, every, every so often uh, we have experiences that kind of bust our category, something new that changes our, maybe our whole life entirely. You know, um, if, if you could imagine, if you'd only ever eaten peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and then one day you taste filet mignon, right? Wouldn't that change your food categories? Or if you'd only ever seen the mountains of Birmingham, and then you see the Rockies, right? You have a new way now of viewing life and the whole world. Well, there's a place in the book of Acts where this, is ha this happens to the apostle Peter. He's given an entirely new category beyond his understanding and expectation. Now, you don't need to turn there, but it's in Acts chapter 10. Peter receives a vision from God of an, a, an enormous sheet coming down to him from heaven. And on the sheet are all sorts of animals. Very bizarre. Especially bizarre is the fact that all of these animals are the kind of animals that the Israelites were told were unclean, inedible. The law of God forbade good Israelites from eating these kinds of animals, things like, things like shellfish and pork, some really good stuff that they couldn't have because the law of God made it off limits. And yet the voice from heaven comes to Peter and says, eat. Now, Peter, being a good Jewish man, says, by no means, Lord. My lips have never touched anything unclean. And yet God says to him, what I have cleansed, you no longer consider unholy. What I say is clean, you no longer treat as unclean. Now, a very peculiar vision all by itself, but immediately it becomes clear what God is saying to Peter. He's compelling him to go to the home of a man named Cornelius, a Gentile man and his household. The Gentiles who were considered to be unclean and unholy, the outsiders, whereas the Israelites were the insiders, these non-Jewish people, Peter would normally never go into their house and eat with them, but God says, go and tell them about Jesus. And so Peter obeys God. He goes to Cornelius' house and preaches to this great crowd of Gentiles the message of the gospel. And in Acts 10, it tells us, while Peter was preaching, as he was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit of God fell upon all who were listening, and they were saved. It was a miracle. And Peter, in response, can only say one thing. He says, how could we deny baptism to these people who have received the Holy Spirit just the same as us? Peter's old categories had been wrecked he realizes now that Jesus truly has come to be the Savior of the world, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Everything now was different. But you know, old habits can die hard. And old categories and sins have their way of resurfacing in our lives. Peter was a man, just like us, with a sinful nature. And even though he knew better, he was still susceptible to hypocrisy in this area. And we see that today in Galatians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, is recounting for us today a very awkward and difficult encounter with his friend, the Apostle Peter. And y'all, this is, this is an uncomfortable passage of Scripture to read because we rightly esteem Peter and Paul as great heroes of the faith, and we should, and yet today we get a, we get a little behind-the-curtain view of ongoing sin, uh, especially in Peter's life. 
And so what we see today is, is difficult, but it's, it's meant for our edification. It's meant for the, the building up of the church, and I think that becomes clear as we go. So uh, if, whether you were here last week or not, it's okay, but we, last week we saw that uh, Paul spoke of a time where he took Barnabas with him to Jerusalem to unfold to the big dogs, Peter, James, and John, the apostles. He unfolded to them his ministry and his gospel to make sure that there was no potential conflict or disagreement. And of course, the outcome of that meeting was great harmony, great unity. They preached the same gospel. Everyone is saved by grace alone through faith alone. Everybody's in agreement with that in Jerusalem. But y'all, that's a message we don't always get right in practice. And that's the issue here in Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. Paul continues now, sometime after this Jerusalem meeting, he says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, here's the issue at hand. Peter had come to Antioch. Apparently, he had come for an extended visit. And Antioch was a city that had a very vibrant young church, a church that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles living in harmony together. And all the while, Peter is enjoying fellowship with his Gentile Christians. He's treating them as equals. He's eating with them, worshiping, taking communion, the whole deal, all together. But then certain men from James came down from Jerusalem. Now, these men were not actually sent by the Apostle James, but they came with a, a sincere amount of clout and influence. They took the name of James, which would have given them a lot of sway, and they show up in Antioch with a very clear agenda. These men were displeased that, that Jewish Christians were embracing the Gentile Christians as equals. These Gentiles who had uh, pagan heritage, who were not raised up abiding in the law of God, they were not circumcised. These Gentiles who still to that day were eating unclean foods with unclean hands, we don't belong at the same table with people like this, Christian or otherwise. That was the point. That was the message. And these men carried a lot of clout. So even though, even though Peter knew better, he began to withdraw from the Gentiles. Paul says, fearing the party of the circumcision. Peter was afraid of these men. We're not entirely sure what made him so afraid. It may have been that, that these men had the power to, to spoil or even ruin Peter's reputation. We don't know. But whatever it was, it caused Peter to start ghosting his Gentile brothers and sisters. He withdrew from them and kept them at arm's length. He stopped eating with them. Potentially, he stopped worshiping and taking communion with them. 
And because Peter was the foremost of the apostles, the other Jewish Christians followed along with him into that same hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. This was bad. So Paul, in his typical gentle and passive way, stands up against Peter. and He says, in public, he says, I opposed Peter to his face. Now, just make a quick point on this. We might look at moments like this in the scripture and say, now, that doesn't seem very Christian. To do it publicly, you know, to his face, it, you know, it's obvious that it was a very sharp rebuke. Shouldn't Paul have taken Peter aside and done this in private? Well, the most obvious answer to that question is this issue had become a public crisis. Peter had led many other men and women into the same hypocrisy, and so it had to be dealt with sharply. And we realize if Paul had not stepped in and dealt so sharply with it, the outcome would have been two churches, not one. Antioch would have had a Jewish church and a Gentile church, and with no mistaking, the Gentiles would have been second class. They would have been second Baptist, Antioch, right? Not first Baptist. That was the, that was the implication here. The pure-blooded Jews are withdrawing because the Gentiles are not good enough to share table with us. And that's why Paul says to Peter, why do you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Why are you changing the entry point for them? Is it not grace alone that saves us? Or is it now grace plus something else? Grace plus heritage, grace plus law. Now, y'all, Peter would have never denied the message of the gospel with his lips. Every time you see in the scripture, Peter proclaiming the gospel, whether it's in the book of Acts or later on in his own letters, he is bold and consistent and right, always, always in the gospel. But the issue was his behavior was out of step with the truth of the message. He was not straightforward in his behavior. He was not in line in how he was acting. And there's such an important application point for us in this. Uh, my, uh, somebody I, I respect a lot named Ray Ortland. he says it like this. We can unsay with our behavior whatever we say in our doctrine. We can believe and even preach all the right and proper things about Jesus and yet deny Jesus in how we live. Is that not true? That's the very definition of hypocrisy, where what we say and even believe does not direct how we live. And y'all, we, you know, we've, you have, if you've grown up in or around church, you know hypocrisy, you know, face to face, right? There are a thousand different flavors of this kind of sin, to be sure. But in this specific text, in this scripture, the issue of hypocrisy concerns what Paul calls justification, right? What is it that sets us right with God? That's the issue at hand. Paul uses this word justify. What justifies us? What makes us right with God? How does a person go from standing under the righteous judgment of God for our sins to now standing under God's mercy and grace, receiving his full acceptance and favor and blessing? How, does, how do we go from one standing to the other? Y'all, that's the most important question you'll ever answer. And that's the issue here. That Peter and Barnabas and these other Jewish Christians, in withdrawing from their Gentile brothers and sisters, 
They are changing the point of entry. They are communicating a different message about what sets you right with God. Paul says they're not straightforward with the truth of the gospel. And this is a threat for everybody. And so listen, look at what Paul says in verse 15. He says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, what's what's Paul doing here? Is he agreeing somehow with, with the hypocrisy? No, he's stating the basis for it. He's summarizing it. How does a person as great as Peter end up in this hypocritical place? Well, it's right here. It's the message that says, we are Jews by nature, which is to say, we are already in good standing with God to begin with. By virtue of our ancestry, by virtue of our heritage, and our keeping of the law. We are not sinners from among the Gentiles. We've already got a leg up on God's acceptance and his favor. The Gentiles are simply greater sinners than us. They're the outsiders. They're the ones who are unclean by nature. They don't keep the law. They don't uh, worship in the temple as we do. And therefore, we are set right with God in a way that they can never be. Or at best, they must become like us if they want to be right with God. They can't simply receive his grace uh, and, and no more uh, work need be done. They have to enter in the same door we do. Otherwise, we just can't treat them as our equals because they're not. Y'all, that was the issue then. And even today, right where we sit, we can be prone to do this very same thing. Now, for us, it's not so much a Jew and Gentile divide, right? We don't live in that world any longer. But it's so easy, and it's even natural, I think, for nice church people to see ourselves as elevated above others, maybe even others in our own church. I mean, how many churches fall prey to this kind of culture? A church culture that says, hey, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about grace. But in reality, it's all about behavior. In reality, it's about your ability to measure up to the standards that we set. And no matter what we say, our behavior, in a sense, betrays us because you have to look and act the part if you want to belong. Not, don't raise your hand, but I mean, I think a lot of us grew up in churches or even households like that. That it's really, no matter what we say, it's really about what you do, what you've done, and whether or not you belong on that basis. And y'all, if that's the case, if you're in a church like that, then the church cannot be a safe place for you to actually confess real sin and experience real forgiveness and grace because there's an obvious and sharp division between who's in and who's out. No matter what we say, we can unsay with our church culture what we say about Jesus all day long. And y'all, if, you know, God forbid that becomes true of Harvest Church, but we need to be sober-minded about this, that we're always towing that line, potentially. We're always susceptible to that very same kind of hypocrisy. If Peter and Barnabas did it, then who are we to think that we might be immune to it? This is a problem that nice church people can drift into, thinking that my niceness, my appearance, my track record, right, which I imagine to be maybe better than others, that's what holds sway 
rather than God's grace. And so the only solution to this, the only solution to that kind of legalism and hypocrisy is grace. It's not more law. It's not for me to say, hey, quit it. Cut it out. Right? When did that ever help? The only thing that can solve that issue of sin is more grace and the right understanding of grace that we continue to renew our minds in. That's what Paul understands it to be. The only solution. Look at verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we, the Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul is getting right to the heart of the gospel here. How is a person set right with God? By faith in Christ. And in that case, both Jews and Gentiles are equal. We can't be anything other than equal in God's eyes. We both stand under condemnation apart from Christ, and therefore we both stand forgiven in Christ. We are saved by faith in Him. We are saved the same way not on the basis of works, and therefore nobody has a leg up on anybody else. There can be no distinction, and Paul will make that clear as the book goes on. We're set right with God by faith in Christ alone and by nothing else. You notice, though, in verse 17, Paul gives us a little insight into probably what was, what was an argument that he was facing in these Gentile churches. The argument went like this. If you take away the law as your justification, how is there now any incentive for you to be holy? If Jesus saves me without any regard for my own goodness, why bother being good? And if Jesus doesn't incentivize me to be good, then he's actually promoting me being bad. If grace really saves me, then what difference does it make how I live? Y'all read Romans 6, by the way, for an even fuller treatment of this. But Paul here and in Romans 6 says, may it never be. On the contrary, he says, if we go back to the law, having received the grace of God, if I go back to the law, if I rebuild again what has been torn down, I only end up proving the point. We only end up condemning ourselves all over again. If you go back to the law... In spite of what Jesus has done, in addition to what Jesus has done, you only end up going back to judgment. Y'all listen, the law is a good thing. We discussed this last week. God gave the law. It's good. And in many ways, the law not only curtails our sin, right, but it also shows us what to do about sin, you know, in terms of society, how to judge it. The law is wonderful in many ways. But the law, you know this in your own heart, knowing what's right has never made you actually be right. Knowing what's good doesn't make you good. In fact, all it can really do is show you how bad you are. The law could never save us to begin with, and that's Paul's point. It was never meant to. God did not give it for that purpose. That's why we need Jesus. 
Why go back to something that couldn't save you to begin with? That's the old category. Don't rebuild what you've now destroyed, what Christ has destroyed. And so the issue is those who have been saved by grace are still trying to live in the old categories of law. And Paul says, no, I defy that way of being. That's hypocrisy. Well, what instead? What else? What new? Y'all, Paul gives us here at the end of this chapter a new category, the new category that defines what it means to be a Christian. And this is something, y'all, that if we, if we really understand it, it will bust everything else we've ever known. Look at verse 19. Paul says, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. This is so important. Paul says, When I recognized that the law could only lead me into judgment and death, that the law could not save me and was never meant to save me, I died to the law. Meaning the law is no longer my master and I am no longer its slave. The law could only produce death in me because I am a sinner, but now instead I'm alive to God. Well, how did that happen? How did he go from death to the law now to being alive to God? Wasn't it the law that made you alive to God by your own good doing? Paul says, no, something else has taken its place. Something far greater. Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If you don't have a favorite scripture, I want to nominate one for you this morning, all right? And I just, I, let me just say it again. If it helps you to close your eyes, I'm going to try to close my eyes here. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When Paul gives us this category, can you see how it's new? Can you see how it's different? This is not a way of saying, you know, I used to look to the law as my justification, but now instead I look to Jesus, as if I just traded in one for the other, as if I just turned directions slightly from point A to now to point B. No, the point of verse 20 is something entirely new. And then Paul uses this language of, of with and in, there is union that we now share with Jesus. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, obviously, that's figurative language. Paul has never been crucified. He was still alive. But consider what he means by that. I have died with Christ. When Christ died, I, in some sense, died with him. And when we think about the death of Christ and all that it accomplished, the list is long. Let me just give you a few things here. When Jesus died on the cross, the scripture tells us that he died for the forgiveness of our sins, that Jesus Christ died to justify us, to set us right with God, that he died to reconcile us to God, to bring us into relationship with God, both now and forevermore. When Jesus died, he died that we might be made new creations. 
The old is gone, the new has come. And so when we receive Christ by faith, we're not simply looking to a different form of religion. We are actually receiving God and becoming united with Christ so that all that he is and all that he's done actually becomes ours. We receive a new identity. We enter a new reality. There's union now. There's no longer distinction and separation and alienation. We are now brought near and made sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of our Savior. And you know, that's, I mean, it's, all by itself, that's the most monumental thing in the world. But think about how it applies. The scripture today, this issue with Peter and Barnabas and these other men and women, certain Christians excluding other Christians. That was all built on a false premise, an old category, that Jesus is wonderful, but somehow he only enters in to shape up the old way and nothing more. He enters in to save us, but nothing of the old way actually is left behind. We still maintain our religious categories. Jesus comes in and does us great good, but we still hold on to our old ways of thinking and being. And therefore, some people are still on the inside and some on the out. And Paul says, no, by no means. Receiving the grace of Christ actually changes us. We are rescued out of what we were, out of the domain of darkness, he calls it, and into the light, into the marvelous light of Jesus. We have died with him. We are dead to our old way of being. We are dead to the old categories, dead to the law as our means of justification, dead to sin as our ruling power, Romans 6 says. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? It doesn't rule us anymore. We're dead to the old person, the old self, that was ruled by the patterns of this present world. And we are dead to any lesser form of religion that tells us to look into the mirror for our identity, for our justification. Y'all, in Christ we have died to all of those things, and therefore in Christ we are now alive to God. And this is so wonderful, and again, Romans 6 is, is even clearer on this, but if we've died with Christ, did Christ stay dead? There wouldn't be a lot of point to this gathering here if he, if he had stayed dead. He rose again in victory. And because Jesus is alive, so now are we united with him in his life. We walk in newness of life, the scripture says. And so because Jesus is alive, so am I. And all that I am, all that I will become is defined by a living Savior. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus on this issue, John chapter 3, he said, you must be born again. Born not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. The flesh profits nothing, Jesus said. The Spirit gives life. We are dead to what we were, and now we are alive to God. That's why Paul can say, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So is, is Christianity a change in belief system? Is it a change in behavior, a change in direction, a change in priorities? Sure. Sure it is. 
but that's not what it is at its deepest root. Those things are outcomes. The true change, the greater reality, is the supernatural reality that in Jesus Christ we actually receive a change in being. We are a new creation. The old has gone. All things now are new. That means a new heart, a new birth, a new life. Something the flesh cannot produce. Something the law cannot produce. That's why no flesh may be justified by works, only by faith in Christ. And that's why Paul is so adamant to Peter and the rest of those hypocrites that you cannot live in the old category. You're out of step with the gospel. Jesus really has made us new. And that's why Paul ends with such a bang in verse 21, the end of this chapter. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And that verse is just as heavy as it sounds. If we could save ourselves, if we could make ourselves right with God through our own good works, our own law-keeping, then Jesus died for no purpose. Why did He need to come if we could have done this thing ourselves? This is a direct hit to any hypocrisy, whether in the early church in Antioch or here at Harvest Church, right here and now, if we are behaving in a way that nullifies or at least downplays the truth of the gospel. To say grace is important, of course, but we have our own category of human righteousness that we uphold around here, and you better line up. Any hypocrisy we bring to the table Grace obliterates it. That's why I said a few weeks ago, the message of grace sounds to some people flimsier than the message of law, right? People who keep the law, they're serious about behavior. They're serious about holiness, right? No, they're not. Because if I think there's a law that I could keep to get to God, then I have made God very small. Small enough for me to achieve all of his demands. I don't think that much of God and his law if I could keep it. Grace has a sharper edge. Grace demands that I cannot reach God on my own, and therefore God must reach me. That's a much harder message to accept, but one that Paul was unwilling to flinch on. And so y'all, as we come back to this at the close, I don't like to admit this, but it's just, let's just have a therapy session for about a half a second here, okay? I'm way more like Peter than Paul. In this story, I like to think of myself as Paul because Paul is the dude here, man. Paul is the guy who sets it straight. But so often, I'm the one who needs to be set straight. I'm Peter. I'm a hypocrite when it comes to matters of God's grace. I love to think that somehow, in my own category of thinking, that somehow I'm okay, I'm good, I'm better. And maybe that's you too. But we need to be encouraged here as we close. Y'all, Peter and Barnabas needed to be set straight. And they were. Don't think that they stayed where they were. Don't think that they remained in this hypocrisy. God brought them back by the message of the gospel, by the work of his spirit and his word. God brought them back and he'll do the same for us. If you are a hypocrite, even just a little bit, the only solution is grace. To see grace for what it really is that puts us all on the equal ground together in Jesus Christ. And he does. Jew, Gentile, whatever categories we create, grace makes us 
solitary, one in Christ. And that's not something to shy away from, to withdraw from. That's something to celebrate. Because the truth is, if I know my own heart, I'm not better. I'm worse. And yet God's grace is for me too. He loved me and gave himself for me. So whether that's a new message to you, maybe it's new. Maybe uh, this, what we call the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us is just music to your ears right now. I hope it is. It may be, though, that you've walked with Jesus for a very long time, and yet you still need it in fresh ways, just like I do. Either way, the precious saving grace of God cannot and will not be a new addition to an old category. We can't make it like that. It's not a new form of religion slightly off from the other. No, it's death to our old categories. And good riddance, by the way, we should be glad for that. For any way of life that only condemns us and keeps us in bondage, we would want that way of life to die with Christ, and we'd want to be raised in something new, right? And so today, whether, whether new information or old for you, I pray that we would come to the same place, that we would receive this grace that Jesus has delighted to give us a new category, a new life, a life which we now live by faith in the Son of God who really has loved me. He really has loved you. And the proof is that he's given his life for you. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning for, um, for you to do the hard and, and necessary work in our hearts to check us on our hypocrisy. And Father, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I do not like to see myself in this light. I want to see myself as, as getting it all just right. And yet, Lord, I'm not better than Peter or Barnabas. Um, we trust and know that even Paul would, would acknowledge his own struggles with sin and hypocrisy. He certainly did. And so, Father, I pray that we would not um, be, be fearful or unwilling to just open ourselves up to you this morning. Lord, any old category that we still try to live in, Lord, any way of, of seeing ourselves as, as, as more worthy or somehow better or, or better suited based on anything else, church attendance, Bible reading, whatever, whatever it is we might look to, thinking that sets us right with you. Father, Tear it down, never to be rebuilt. And let us live now by faith in the Son of God. Let every good thing that we are, Lord, be fruit that comes from Him and not things we look to as if they came from us. I pray, Lord, for Harvest Church, a 
chiefly for me, I pray though for all of us, that we would set no such um, got, uh, 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 boundaries or draw no such lines as to who's really in and who's really out. No unspoken false righteousness that elevates some above others. But that we really would, as, as it says, Lord, in your word, we would welcome one another just as Christ Jesus has welcomed us. And Father, that you will, this morning, that you will revive our hearts in the precious truth of grace. Lord, not something we, uh, you know, nod our heads in agreement with, but something we feel and know. We really, we really have died. Died to all lesser forms of justification. We are set right by faith alone. And Jesus has done it all. And so, Father, would you grant us this today, receiving you, trusting you, let us live by faith. And Lord, let, I pray Harvest Church would be the kind of place where it's unmistakably so. We would have a, a culture here so saturated with this good news that, Lord, there would be no hint of hypocrisy to be found. Only the joy and fellowship and union and unity that come with people who know we're only here because you have chosen to love us and be merciful to us. Lord, I ask this, uh, please, Lord, do this work in my own heart and for all here who need it, that we might be a bright and shining example of what sinners can be when Jesus Christ lays hold of us. And we ask it in his powerful and gracious name. Amen.